Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Welcome to Women on the Line, a national women's current affairs program produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Anya Saravanan. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you're hearing us from. On today's show, I speak with Isabel Oderberg, journalist, writer and non-profit communications specialist based in Melbourne. Isabel discusses her upcoming book, Hard to Bear, which is an investigation of how Australia manages early pregnancy loss. Today's show contains descriptions and discussions on miscarriage, early pregnancy loss, grief, trauma and mental health. This may be distressing to some listeners. If this is a trigger for you, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or lifeline.org.au, Beyond Blue on 1300 224636 or your state-based service. Here's Isabel Oderberg. Uh, I never know where to start with these things. I am a journalist and a writer and I work in communications in not-for-profits and media. And I was a journalist for, you know, 20 years or something ridiculous, 18 years. And I took a redundancy from News Corp. I was in a very senior role at News Corp and I happily took Uncle Rupert's redundancy check and went off to make my way somewhere else. And I went into not-for-profits and a few years after that, I met my husband. When I met my husband, I was actually having IUI, which is intrauterine insemination on my own with a donor. I just had decided that I wanted to have a family and I'm not really the kind of person who waits for a man to make things happen. So I just decided to go it alone. I had just had my first round when I met my husband and I... Uh, he asked me to put it on pause while we figured out what was going on. And what was going on was that we fell in love and decided to start a family together. So that's what we did. And, you know, I spent my whole life trying not to get pregnant. And then when I actually did want to get pregnant, it kind of all went pear-shaped. So I had one miscarriage and then I had my first living child, a boy. And then I, uh, you know, we waited until he was, I think, almost... Uh, 18 months old and we to have a second child and or to start trying to have a second child and, and we got married and did a few other things that were important to us for various reasons and then I had a lot more losses I actually had sorry I had a loss with my son as well so my, my son was a twin but he only it only ended with one ba- live baby and then I had five losses back to back over the course of like 18 months two years and then I got pregnant and had my second living baby Uh, a daughter. So I now have two living babies and seven angel babies. And I am writing a book about uh, miscarriage called Hard to Bear. And 
I guess I've also sort of become through working on the book and through writing columns about it and kind of putting myself forward as a spokesperson, if you like, on this issue of early pregnancy loss and the way we treat women in a variety of ways and not just women, anyone who experiences loss. I have become a bit of an advocate and a bit of a, I guess, a campaigner in, in a sense for change. And that's where I'm at now. So, uh, and I'm also, I also still work in communications. I work for the Public Interest Journalism Initiative, which is a, another cause that's very close to my heart. And tell me about the book. What made you decide to write it firstly? And what's the process been like so far? Well, you know, a lot of journalists always, you know, end up writing books. And I was never one of those journalists because I have a very short attention span. And I was like, there's no issue in the world that I would be able to, that would keep my attention for, for the length of a book. So I really didn't have any interest. And then when I was going through miscarriage after miscarriage, a few of my friends in the industry approached me and said, you know, would you write about a column for us or an opinion piece or whatever? And I wrote one column that was sort of more about sharing stuff on social media, but ultimately I, I guess I felt like I wanted to be at the end of the journey because I didn't know where the journey was going to take me and I didn't know how long the journey was going to last. And I felt like writing about the journey in the middle of it felt premature. I didn't want to tempt fate. You get very superstitious when you're experiencing a lot of grief as well. But through being involved in the community of women who, you know, and, and partners and non-binary people and trans people who experience pregnancy loss, there are a lot of different elements here that we're just not addressing at all. And we are so far behind where we should be in terms of caring for the people who experiencing you experience loss. And so more and more, I was like, this needs a deep dive. This needs a really thorough airing out. And I read a few other books. I read Pain and Prejudice by Gabrielle Jackson, which I just highly recommend anyone who's interested in women's health and the way in which we fail women in terms of care for their health. And then I also read Jess Hill's um, See What You Made Me Do. Both of those women I'm lucky enough to call friends and I thought they were really important. But when I read them, the thing that occurred to me was I can do this. Like I can absolutely, they were very inspirational uh, in terms of doing a deep dive and actually making a difference because those books are really making a difference, not just to the people who experience that kind of trauma or aren't believed or aren't taken seriously, but also in terms of policy. And it made me think a little bit more broadly about how I could influence the systems that kind of conspire. And when I say systems, I mean the medical system, societal systems, feminist systems, mental health care, all of those things um, that conspire to make women and other people who experience loss feel isolated and sometimes just add to the trauma you know, of loss. So that's, so that's why I decided to write the book. I hope that's not too long-winded an answer. No, no, that's great. <laughs> yeah. So in the process, you've been talking to lots of people about it and is that difficult? So I, I did a week of, of interviews. I mean, women and their partners and anyone who experiences loss, like people talk to me, I think, because that's, that, that is a, a kind of a, um, because I put myself out there as someone who wants to talk about this. So I have the privilege of hearing a lot of stories and a lot of experiences and supporting a lot of people. Um, I started doing some formal interviews for the book a couple of weeks ago, and that was really hard. 
and it inevitably brings up some of my own trauma. But having said that, the overwhelming feeling was just astonishment at how many differing experiences and similarities there are that operate kind of almost symbiotically. Also, these amazing humans who just have so much, you know, they're so eloquent and articulate in the way that they can explain to me and give perspective. So yes, it's incredibly difficult, but that's not the primary takeaway for me. The primary takeaway is just how many, you know, really interesting and fascinating insights there are if you actually talk to these people and give them an opportunity to talk to you. Women's on the line. Women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> So there was an age article published in October last year where you talked about the discomfort that a publisher expressed when you brought them this idea that people might not want to read a whole book about it. And rightfully, you said, you know, we talk about a lot of other difficult things like rape and child sexual abuse and genocide and, and all of that. So what is it about this particular topic that makes people so uncomfortable? It was really devastating when that publisher said that to me because I felt so strongly that it was wrong. Like I felt really angry because I was like, there are lots of reasons to not publish my book, but that is just not one of them. To me, it was just a, A, there's fear and discomfort around this topic. It really is like one of the taboo topics, you know, around women and women's health. Because it combines all the things that we don't that we don't like. It combines, you know, bleeding. It combines grief. It combines vaginas. It combines ovaries. It like all the things that people. Oh my god, I don't want to talk about that. It, it's it's a combination of all of them, and it was astonishing to me even more so that that publisher was female because I was like, really, like, I was really shocked and I was really angry and it just made me more determined, really. And I think that perhaps it kind of suggests that there is a lack of understanding as to actually how complicated miscarriage and early pregnancy loss actually is, because there are a lot of different elements around it. Like, firstly, there's like eight different kinds of miscarriage. So like, you know, let's start there. Not all miscarriages are the same. There's a big difference between a miscarriage at four weeks and a miscarriage at 19 weeks. And that's not to say that one is more traumatic than the other. It's just a different set of challenges to face. And, you know, then you've got the psychological aspects of management, you've got the medical aspects of management, you've got a whole lot of um, challenges around policy. There's a lot of research into this area, but not very much in Australia. And a lot of that research from overseas just hasn't been translated into best practice in management here, in, in policy and care here. So... I really think there is a lack of understanding and that's what I think that conversation really demonstrated to me. But, you know, writing the book and doing this and breaking down those barriers is a challenge. And that was just one example of the challenges that I've had to face, you know, and that's fine. I've faced bigger challenges in my life. So we'll get there. I have no doubt. And, and there's a huge amount of support in the publishing industry for this book elsewhere. So I'm not worried about it, but I just thought it was fascinating. Like, you know, we've got how many books on Pell and 
sexual abuse in the church were released last year. Like, it's just odd to me. It just seemed very interesting and very, it offered an insight into some of the psychology, I think, you know? Yeah. That's one of the themes that you bring up a lot about the, the silence around this topic. In another article published in The Guardian last year, you discussed Chrissy Teigen's very public sharing of her pregnancy laws and then Meghan Markle afterwards. And you talked about how a lot of this happens because of the silence mm. around the topics of you know, miscarriage. And because of that, there is a real lack of education around pregnancy loss and its causes. So my next question is a two-parter. One, how do we lift that silence around miscarriage? And number two, how do we improve the quality of education around pregnancy loss and its causes? Well, the first issue around silence, I feel like there are a lot of columns and there's a lot of writing about the silence, about the actual silence. And what that does is we're not actually discussing miscarriage. We're discussing the silence around miscarriage. So what I want to start doing, and this is what I'm trying to do in my work, is actually start talking about miscarriage, about what, where are we letting women and other people who experience loss down? Like, where are we letting them down? What are the challenges? Like, I can't tell you how many horror stories. I have hundreds of horror stories. I have binders full of horror stories, right? Um, and I have doctors that I interview and they tell me what best practice is and it doesn't in any way align with the real stories that I'm hearing from people that experience loss. It's, it's like another world. It's just completely different. And I want to show that the two are not, marrying and why they're not marrying and how they're not marrying and how we can get them to be in the same space you know the best practice and the reality so in terms of the silence i am so done with talking about the silence as the issue the issue isn't the silence the issue is all of the things inside the silence that we don't discuss because the silence is the wall does that make sense so that's where i'm trying to move the conversation too, right? And the silence exists because people are uncomfortable. And the more we talk about it, the less people will be uncomfortable. And then the more we can stop talking about the friggin' silence and start talking about the issues that we're not talking about. You know, I'm talking about issues like, uh, you know, women waking up from having a DNC, which is a surgical procedure to end a pregnancy where the, there is no life or where there is unlikely to be a live birth you know, waking up from a DNC in a women's hospital in a maternity ward where you've got a living, a woman who's just given birth to a living baby next to you. It's not appropriate. It's not appropriate. You know, I'm talking about this. This is one of the most common themes is uh, when people go and get scans um, with threatened miscarriages and you always have to have a referral when you have a scan. So the referral says this person is coming for a threatened and they are sat in a waiting room with heavily pregnant people. It, like really simple things that can add to a trauma so severely. And these are easily fixable if you just acknowledge that the people who experience loss have grief and have trauma. So that's the silence question. In terms of the education, the elements are there if the people who work in these fields want it. I think that my job my calling is to kind of demonstrate that they do need it and that they should want it. And that's what I'm doing. So I think that's my job. And I think it's the job of a lot of people who have experienced loss is to advocate 
if they are comfortable to do so, if they're in a safe space and if they are ready, is to advocate with their medical professionals. I sort of said to my ultrasonologist who'd done the vast majority of my ultrasounds, you know, have you thought about seating women who attend this clinic with threatened miscarriage in another room, just in, in, in another room so that they're not sitting in a room where heavily pregnant women are coming out of an office saying it's a boy or, you know, um, oh my God, this time tomorrow I'm going to have a baby, you know, like it, it happens. And I think we need to talk about it and I need to do my work and really get more eyeballs on this issue. Mm. What we also need to talk about is education of young people to understand that when you get pregnant, that doesn't mean you're going to end up with a live baby. And I'm talking about educating everyone, not just women, but this affects everyone. So it's about pregnancy test does not equal baby. Positive pregnancy test does not equal baby. Decision to have baby does not equal baby. There's this assumption that you will decide whether you're in your twenties or your thirties or whatever, you know, whatever age that you're going to have a baby and that, that that's it. Like you decide and you have sex or you have IUI or you use a donor or you use a turkey based or whatever the hell you want and that that's it, you'll have a baby. And it is not that easy and it is not that simple. I think there's also an oversimplification where you go, oh, it's all right, I'll, I'll have IVF. IVF is really expensive. It's really traumatic. It's incredibly invasive. You take a lot of hormones that really can mess with you in pretty serious ways. Um, and, and especially mentally, you know, like I know a lot of my, my friends who've had IVF have really struggled with their mental health through that. It's very challenging. It's not just, oh, well, I'll just have, you know, IVF. It's a, it's not something that should be taken lightly. It's, it's a, it's a big undertaking. So I think the education piece that you're talking about is so multifaceted because there are so many people that need education, including just the general public. So it's a big challenge, but we can do it. We've done it with so many other issues. This is just one more that we need to add, you know, to the list. Yeah. On community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. On today's show, we're listening to Isabel Oderberg, journalist, writer and non-profit communications specialist based in Melbourne, discussing her upcoming book, Hard to Bear, which is an investigation of how Australia manages early pregnancy loss. We now return to the second part of the conversation, where Isabel discusses the links between climate change and pregnancy loss. And I want to talk to you about a more recent article that you wrote. It was a Guardian article as well about the links between bushfire season and the negative effects on pregnancies, in particular, how exposure to fine particle air pollution increases risks of miscarriage and preterm birth. So in that article, you ask, why was the health advice for pregnant women so hazy during the season? And also that we need more appropriate health messaging. What does that sort of appropriate health messaging look like for you? I think that the risks should be adequately and properly articulated. I think that we don't communicate well enough the real risks that that kind of pollution actually does create. 
And it's not just, I mean, I chose the bushfire topic in part because we were heading into summer and because we're heading into bushfire season. And, and, the, and the thing that sparked it was the AHW, which is the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare report around the impacts of bushfire smoke. But the majority of that was looking at asthma and, you know, the, the more obvious breathing difficulties, respiratory difficulties, things like that. And there was just nothing like, so pregnant women are listed as key on the website of like people that should be careful, but there's no kind of reason why there's no um, explanation of the risks. There's no real kind of, there was no real guidance around what you could do if you were pregnant or looking to conceive. There was no suggestion that if you were looking to conceive, you might want to wait a couple of months, you know, and just, be really careful um, with your intake. And I mean, but these issues, this issue of particle matter and inflammation and epigenetics and some of the other issues that I talk about in that article, that also goes for general air pollution. So walking on main roads and things like that. This is one of the things that I, I go into. Bushfire smoke is particularly intense. So the particle matter is really, really high. But that's not to say that outside of bushfire season, there isn't risk. There is risk. There's risk in general air pollution, especially in areas where that pollution tends to be heavier. So for instance, like I said, walking on a main road to get to work that is heavily congested during rush hour. And especially I think of Sydney and there are certain roads that really are very congested you know, during rush hour and things like that. And it's never, I've never heard anyone say to me, I was shocked, you know, if you're heavily pregnant, probably don't walk on a main road in rush hour to work. Like what, that's just not a thing, but it, it should be. That's the point, right? So I didn't want to write that article. It was, um, it, it was a lot, a hell of a lot of work. And it was sort of a, a, a it was um, a bit tangential to what I was doing with the book. But the more I kind of, <laughs> the more I thought about it and the more it sat in my brain kind of tapping me like tap, 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 tap. I just knew I had to do it. I, I felt it was very much in the public interest and a really important issue to address. So yes, I did the article and, and it was well supported by certain people in the medical field, which I hope, I hope means that maybe the issue might get a bit more attention. But there's like a significant proven link between early pregnancy loss and particle matter and also preterm birth and particle matter. I found out later after the story was published because this was that a grant was actually awarded while I was writing the story um, to a guy who, a professor who is examining the health repercussions for children who were in utero during significant bushfire events. Uh, so that, that is interesting. Again, nothing about early pregnancy loss. The focus always tends to be on preterm birth and, you know, children that, that actually are born alive. And, I, you know, I think that's just because people say, oh, well, you know, miscarriage, it was inevitable, there are genetic issues, da da da, da what we're seeing is that it's not inevitable in every case. And as one of the researchers that I spoke to, um, the researchers who took part in that story were just brilliant. And, you know, Sarah Robertson, one of the things that she says is like, we are seeing 
huge spikes in infertility. And this is a real, like, you know, we look at the kind of the handmaid's tale dystopian future and I don't want to be alarmist, but like this is a senior researcher at a medical Institute saying, this is the future of the human race that we're talking about. Like, I can't believe that this isn't a mainstream issue. I can't believe that we're not talking about this a lot more than what I see, you know? Mm. I think with that story, I'd just say one other thing, which was that when I was reading the research, I was kind of going, oh my God, like, whoa, like this is, this is really scary. Like this is really frightening. And, and this is why I had to write the story because I was like, this is really terrifying stuff. You know, and I'm thinking, well, I'm not a doctor. I'm Jewish. So sometimes I like to think I'm a doctor, but I'm not actually a doctor. Uh, my grandmother would love me to be a doctor. I'm not a doctor. But I'm reading these papers. I'm going, maybe I'm like over-egging it. You know, I'm a journalist. Like maybe I'm trying to over-egg it or I'm over-sensationalizing it or whatever. And every single researcher and doctor that I spoke to said, oh, no, 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 you're under-egging it. Like this is bigger than that. This is bigger than that you know? And I was like, oh my God. And like the academics actually tend to be quite on the less excitable side. And they were like, oh no, 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 this is really bad. Like this is really, really dangerous. And the more I went into it, the more I was like, I'm really glad I'm writing this story. As much as I didn't really have capacity at that point, because we were heading into the Christmas break and there's more to come on that story. So watch that space. So I don't know how much your listeners know about writing books, but there's no money in it. So, <laughs> so I have got to go fund me for anyone who thinks that my work is important. I also have a website. So I just encourage anyone who's interested in this topic to visit hardtobear.com. I have, you know, go fund me if you want to financially support my work, but also if you want to read my work, if you want to share my work, it's for anyone who has experienced loss and anyone there you know we don't talk enough about the people outside the definition of women who experience loss there are many so anyone who has experienced loss and wants to read more or get in touch with me um a, it's a village of people behind this book from the people that share their stories to the people who just offer a kind word and keep me going so yeah That's all for Women on the Line today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can read more about Isabel's work at hardtobear.com and isabeloderberg.me. You can also follow Isabel on Twitter at yodaberg, Y-O-D-A-B-E-R-G. Women on the Line is a national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia and the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is produced by Ripley Cavera. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. I'm Anya Saravanan and we hope you have an amazing week.